How many know that that's one of the world's biggest killers? Isn't it? Yeah. Is, is diarrhea. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, we're going to look... I, I think you, we, we can't talk about First Na- uh, justice without addressing First Nations in Canada. I think it is the essential defining uh, justice issue in Canada. Uh, we're going to look at the education in, two th- in the two-thirds world. Uh, the Maasai Choir is going to be talking about a, a, a school that they're, they're raising funds for, for the poorest of the poor in Tanzania. Ralph is going to talk about child soldiers and, and children and orphans and trafficking and all of that. Uh, Dean's going to talk about hunger. Dean's been, of course, very intricately involved with Chili Wagon, and, and we'd like to connect... That to our own local ministry here with Chili Wagon. We'd like to have a, a grocery. Uh, uh, every week we want to give you something practical to do. So we'd like to hand you a grocery bag the week before. And Gordy's going to get Gordy Gibosh to do a little shopping list. We can all bring a little, little uh, offering the next Sunday for our Chili Wagon stash. Uh, girls and women. This is a huge social justice issue in the world today. And the book Half the Sky and other books of are raising awareness of how important it is for girls and women to be educated and how it just lifts the, the level of communities around the world when we, we focus on that, we concentrate on that. I want to talk about doing justice justly. In other words, uh, I want to deal with the issue of violence versus nonviolence and, and dealing with revenge and, and all of these things. Often we, are, we get into the trap that uh, Mugabe got into where... Uh, in, in, in trying to carry out social justice in Zimbabwe, he just perpetrated more injustice uh, by the eviction of the, of the white farmers. Uh, this, you know, uh, abortion and adoption, I think that often when we talk about social justice, we tend to veer in this neighborhood to issues on the left. And abortion is, of course, an issue that, that the right raises. And I know we know it's controversial. We know there's there's, there's different perspectives on how to address it and how to move forward with this. But I think we'd be amiss if we just ignored it. I think we need to talk about it. And, and I think you're free to disagree. And I think, it, I think the, the, the important is that we're, that we're conversing around Scripture about these issues. And, and, and at the heart of it is, are, are we a culture and a society that welcomes children? Uh, the unholy trinity. Does anybody know what that is? Homelessness, drug addiction, and mental illness. A cluster bomb in our city, right? So we're going to look at that one. And then Michael Collins, the head of the Salvation Army here, he's quite a guy. Uh, He's going to share the Salvation Army, his story in the Salvation Army. I'm very excited about that, that that, uh, Sunday. So I haven't started preaching yet, so you can't turn the clock on. Here we go. This is it. All right, the story. True justice is founded on remembering our story, remembering our journey. And this passage that I'm looking at is found in Micah chapter 6. It's actually the seven verses that precede Micah 6, 8. And as we've learned over and over again, it's important to look at things in context. So what's the context that Micah 6, 8 appears in? Well, God actually calls a court hearing. God takes his own people to court. He says, I have some accusations I want to make. I, have, I, I, I need some witnesses. Now, who does God call as witnesses when the, it's with his own people? Well, 
It says in Micah 6, or verse 1, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against His people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Now, before I re- go to the next slide, I just want to point out a couple of things. First of all, God, notice the language of covenant there. God says His people. There's a, whenever that, that ownership, that possessive uh, pronouns are used... That's the language of covenant. And you, you find it through the whole Old Testament where God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. So it, it's mutual. It's not that God just owns us and says, okay, be my slaves. And you do. No, there's a mutuality there. And, and it's covenant language. My wife. I'm her husband. My son, my daughter. That's covenant language, isn't it? Right? My church. I like Eleanor. She, anytime she drives by the church, she goes, my church! My church! She's just really passionate about it, right? I love that. Covenant language. And so God is calling as the witness the mountains and the hills and, and creation, the earth. And He says, He says, don't you remember, don't you remember the story that prior to the fall, the creative order was full of God's shalom. The shalom is, what does shalom mean? Peace. But it's more than just the absence of conflict. The biblical concept of the Hebrew word shalom is is right relationship between God and His people and between His people and each other and between races and genders and classes and between the created order with creation. We're at peace with creation. God says, don't you remember that? And then when the fall came, that shalom was violated. That sense of rightness and justice was destroyed and our relationship with God disrupted every other relationship because we lost that primary relationship. And so in came misogyny and sexism, racism, manipulation, blame shifting, class struggles, oppression and violence. Our relationship with the creative order was disrupted as the earth and animal life was disrupted because of the fall. But as we know, in the story, God immediately began to go to work to put it all back together again. To restore that sense of shalom in the created order that had been lost. But He has chosen not to do that apart from us, His covenant people. So He's making it all right again. He's putting it all back together again. But He has chosen not to do that apart from us. So He called Abraham to be His first covenant person who would walk with him humbly. Of course, we know there was a few before that, like Noah and and others, but, but for Abraham, it became a community, a family. And he said, Abraham, I want you to leave your family and your home, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And it says, Abraham went out in Hebrews not knowing where he was going, and God said, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. It was the same calling that God called us to Vancouver. Same, same word. I'm here because of that call to Abraham. I'm in that tradition. And many of you have experienced that same thing, haven't you? It's it's a missional call. It's a call to leave and cleave. Right? And and he said, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make you a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. How many know God is still fulfilling that promise to Abraham? He's fulfilling it through the seed of Abraham... Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in Matthew it says, the Son of David, Son of Abraham. 
And out of Jesus has come this incredible movement around the world, a movement of justice, a movement that is announcing a new kingdom, a kingdom that has the same shalom that existed before the fall, only now with redemption and, and restoration and mercy for those of us who've either been victimized by injustice or we've been unjust ourselves. Because I'll tell you what, the oppressors are just as bound as the oppressed. They need each other. And this whole gospel of justice is about freeing the oppressed and the oppressors. That, that everybody needs freedom. I believe that God's call to Moses was not just to deliver Israel. It was to deliver Egypt. It was to deliver Egypt from their oppressiveness. And so God entered into covenant with them and He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. But yet God says He's got an accusation now. What's, what's going on? He says, my people... What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. Notice the genders of leadership there. It's good, isn't it? First of all, he reminds them of their story. He says to... What's his accusation to his covenant people? First of all, he says, I want you to remember your journey. He reminds them of their formative roots that when he came to form them as a nation, they were being oppressed. They were slaves. Remember, they initially went to Egypt under Joseph for, uh, to be fed in a famine. But later it says a pharaoh grew up who didn't know Moses. And one of the, as I said at the beginning of the message, one of the greatest causes of injustice is amnesia on history. People that are hard-hearted towards First Nations in Canada, people that are hard-hearted towards the French in Canada have a bad sense of history. I really believe every, every English Canadian, by the way, should read Champlain's Dream. Champlain's Dream is a thick book like this. It's a novel written by an American historian who lived in Maine, just south of uh, uh, New Brunswick, where Champlain used to uh, travel and explore. I wept my way through that book. His vision for Canada, his vision for New France, it just you can see how it's influenced Canada. And I believe that if every English Canadian would read that 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 novel, that's it's it reads like a, it's a story, it's a historical truth. It's not it's not it's not fiction, it's true, but if we'd read it, we would have our hearts softened. And we'd never have this French English thing again in Canada. And his heart for the First Nations was incredible. Partnership. The whole War Wampum uh, Treaty that they made with the Iroquois, that came out of Champlain. Remember the beads running together down the belt with two cultures walking together in mutual respect? That came from Champlain. His time, his day, his era. There's something about an, a, an awareness of history that softens the heart. And there was a Pharaoh that wasn't... He didn't know Joseph. His heart became hard. And they began to oppress Israel. And they began to uh, uh, extend terrible injustice to, injustices to them. What is oppression? Oppression is profiting at someone else's expense. Not the mutuality, you know, where you exchange goods and services in a normal kind of uh, reciprocity but where someone suffers and you benefit. Your benefiting causes them to suffer. And this is what happened in Egypt. Egypt began to profit at Israel's expense. They began to build the pyramids and all these other great structures. And they, they forced them into labor, extended overtime with no pay, 
No weekends, no coffee breaks, no medical benefits. So God reminds Israel that He delivered them from all of this. Remember, He brought them out of Egypt. He brought them out of this oppression. And the story became formative for the constitution of their nation. I mean, no, Canada has a constitution. USA has a constitution. Our constitutions are built on our stories. Whenever you want to talk to an American about their constitution, they, the constitution makes no sense without the American story. And it's the same with Israel. It's their story that formed the constitution, which was, what was the constitution? The, te- the Torah, the Ten Commandments. How does the Ten Commandments begin? God says to them, He says, there's only one thing harder than getting free. This is LaGuardia paraphrase. There's only one thing harder than getting free. It's staying free. Alright? Turn to somebody and say, that's right. Come on. That's right, isn't it? There's one thing harder than getting free. It's staying free, right? So He gave them the Ten Commandments, which began with this. Here's how the Ten Commandments begin. I am the Lord who brought you out of slavery. Now, you're free. Here's how you stay free. You shall have no other gods before me. Before me, right? And he gives the first three commandments that have to do with their relationship with him. No idols, no other gods before him. Then the last six have to do with loving their neighbor. So walk humbly with your God and do justice. But there is a middle command there. What's the hinge one? What one did I miss? Love God, love your neighbor. What's the middle one? It's the hinge one. Keep the Sabbath holy. Now listen to this. Is the Sabbath to do with social justice? Listen to this one. Observe the Sabbath command by keeping it holy. In Deuteronomy it says this, On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox or your donkey, or any other animals, nor any other foreigner in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And that the Lord your God brought you out there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The whole Sabbath was a statement of what God had brought them out of. Brought them out of oppression. And He said, you must learn how to stop. And you must, all of your servants, all of your slaves even, because they still had that system. He said, they must stop. That was unheard of in their time. God introduced a concept called the weekend. Right? There was no weekend before that. It was just blowing right through. Seven day, 24-7, work, overtime, no coffee break, no lunch break. You know, you have to work till like 11, 10, 11, 12 at night till the sun went down. That's basically, I see some of the workers in our neighborhood. You know what? They, they'll work on houses and do rentals. They, they don't stop till the sun goes down. I'm praying for winter. Lord, bring winter. Yes. Yeah. So... Um, and, and, then, and then God tells them how to treat the foreigner and the poor and the widow and the orphan. And over and over and over again, He says, and remember, you were slaves. You were slaves. Remember your story. Remember the mercy that was shown to you. And when He tells them to celebrate Pentecost, I love it. He says, when you have your parties, invi-, He said, invite the poor, invite the foreigner, invite the stranger. Everybody thinks that was Jesus' idea. When Jesus talked about when you have a feast, invite the poor and the stranger, that wasn't a new idea. Jesus was just telling them, He was interpreting Torah for them. He was telling, hey, listen, this is, this is how God constituted us. 
This is what we are as the people of God. And on the Feast of Pentecost, he said, when you have a feast, don't just invite your, your friends and your relatives. Invite the poor, the marginalized. And don't forget when you're harvesting your grain to leave the gleanings for the poor so, so they can pick up and have food to eat. And because Boaz obeyed that, he married Ruth, who was following along as a poor, poor widow. And she, she met Boaz. And there's an incredible love story. And then they had a baby and then a grandbaby named David. And then Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world. Whoa. I think I'm awake right now. Isn't that great? And then, and then he introduced, if that wasn't enough, he introduces this thing called Jubilee. Now, what's Jubilee? Well, every 50 years, God says, well, you know, the way, you know, there's storms and floods and bad stuff happens and stuff happens and stuff happens and stuff happens. He said it in a Jewish way. Stuff happens, right? God says stuff happens. And so what happens is sometimes the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. You get this polarity. One of the signs of God's blessing on a nation is you got a healthy middle class, a healthy, bulky middle class. And when, when God's blessing is withdrawn, you begin to lose that, that middle class. And there's this polarity between the wealth, wealthy and the poor. And so God says, we got a way to stop that. Every 50 years, if you're in debt, your debts are canceled. If you become a slave to pay off your debts, your slaves go free. And if you've lost your land, your inheritance land as a family, all that land is restored to you. It's a good, good concept, eh? You know what the problem was? Israel never kept it. They never did it. And I'm going to show you a scripture in a few minutes that shows that, that God was not happy with that. He wanted them to do that. But they said, it's not It's not practical. World Bank system doesn't work on those principles, right? And so when Jesus came along in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, he stands up and he says, uh, he takes the scripture and he reads Isaiah 61. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to proclaim the year of Jubilee or Liberty. Many people believe that's, that Jesus was saying, I've come to fulfill the spirit of Jubilee. Right? And didn't the early church do that? We see in his teachings on how we're to treat the poor and the marginalized and the orphan. We see Jesus living out the spirit of what God had called Israel to in the Old Testament. So let's move on. So God says now, it gets interesting. My people remember what Balak king of Moab plotted and what Balaam son of Beor answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. Very interesting place there. That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now what's the significance of the Shittim to Gagal? What's all that about? Well, how many have ever been in Shittim in your life? You've been there. <laughs> I don't know if I need to give much interpretation. I think it's pretty obvious what it's talking about. And I looked it up, and I was right. It's, it's, I looked it up. It's unbelievable. You know what the, the Shittim place was? It's that place, remember, where, where the king of, of, I think it was Moab, was trying to, trying to uh, defeat Israel. So he hires this sorcerer named Balaam. He says, can you curse them? Remember the story? Balaam tries to curse Israel. And every time he did, he'd bless them. Blessing would come out of his mouth. So he said, this isn't going to work. Remember his donkey? It, he got so stubborn, his own donkey started preaching to him. Right? My dad used to say, next time you're anointed, don't forget God used an ass. So 
Don't let it get to your head. So, um, so this, this whole cursing thing wasn't working out very well. So Balaam comes up with a plan. He says, there's only one way that you're going to be able to defeat Israel. He says, they, their sex life is suffering right now because when you've been camping for 40 years, it's, you know, you haven't showered. It's just kind of like everybody's not interested. So, so he says, here's the only way you're going to defeat Israel. He says, you're going to have to get them to defeat themselves. They're going to have to be their own worst enemies. So send the most gorgeous-looking Moabite babes that you can to the camp and invite the men to go for a little worship celebration and tell them that uh, in doing that, they'll get a little hum Right? So, this is exactly what happened. I'm not joking. In, in, in Numbers chapter 25, a bunch of Moabite women seduced the Israelite men to worship their gods, and they offered sex for it. And it's interesting because God often uses negative sexual images as a picture of our unfaithfulness to Him throughout, throughout the Bible. You'll see that as a picture of idolatry. Interesting parallels. So the result was there was judgment on Israel... There was a, they defeated themselves and, and, and they were judged. They, they were disciplined for that. And yet in the midst of that failure, God showed mercy. He showed mercy. He didn't give up on them. He didn't throw them away. He dealt with them, but then he called them back. Called them back to what their, their covenant was. And so, what's the significance of Gilgal? Does anybody remember Gilgal? Gilgal was a place where, remember Joshua and the children of Israel all crossed over the Jordan River, remember the Red Sea had been one miracle like that. Then the Jordan River at flood time was another miracle. They crossed over and they made a pile of rocks and they called it Gilgal. So what is God saying here? Remember your journey from those failures you've had and those victories you've had. I've been there all the time. Whether you're in, maybe you're in the deep Shittim today or maybe you are in Gilgal today. What are you laughing at, Kim? Um, wherever you are, God says, remember your journey. I've been with you. I've been there. I've shown you mercy. It's my mercy, right? God says, remember your journey. So what's the significance of that? Well, we go on, he says, God goes on, now he brings it to the present context. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow down before the exalted God. Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Well, what's going on here? Well, we come to the immediate context. Micah was a prophet who existed, who, who, who prophesied, who ministered, during the, the kingships of a, a man named Jotham, who was a good king, Ahaz, who wasn't so good, and Hezekiah, who was a per, very good king, right? So two were good, one was bad. And you'll remember that over the course of time, Israel had appointed a king. The first one didn't work out so well, Saul. But then David came, and God gave all these promises to David and his descendants. And as you're going through the book of Kings especially, you always have these two headers. One of two headers that always starts a king's life, right? It says, and then so-and-so reigned and he what? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Or he didn't, right? Or he did what was evil, right? Or like Ahab, he, he was just a... He was a rotter, right? 
And, and, and you get this kind of one-sentence summary of the kings as, they're, as, they're, as you're coming through Israel's history. Well, Jotham was a good king. Ahaz, it says he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Well, what's going on here? Ahaz was a guy who had an insecurity problem. And because of, because of his insecurity... He would disobey. He wouldn't trust God. He would seek. He would. He would uh, allow worship to other gods and other idols. And so there was this increasing encroachment and intimidation from surrounding nations. Israel, the kingdom, the divided kingdom to the north, was attacking them. They were allying themselves with the the Syrians, uh, the northern king, uh, which was a kingdom, a neighboring kingdom, and they were attacking Israel. And they were losing land. And so Ahaz is insecure. And he, he says, i got to get some help here. So he seeks the help of a powerful Aramean king named Tigliath-Pelazer. How many are glad that's not your name? All right? His name was Tigliath-Pelazer. He was the powerful king of Aram. And he, what, what Ahaz does, or sorry, uh, yeah, Ahaz, what he does is he goes into the temple of the Lord and he strips all the gold out of the temple. How many know when you're, you're intimidated, when the enemy is intimidating you, the house of God usually suffers first? He goes right into the house of God, strips the gold off the temple, and he offers a bribe to this powerful king. And as he goes to Damascus to, to ask for this king's help, the king responds and says, I will, I will, and he does. He beats the snot out of the northern kingdom and, and, and drives away the Syrians. But when Ahaz is in Damascus, he sees this very, very impressive bronze, or very impressive altar, a shiny big altar in the Damascus temple. And he's so impressed with it, he makes a replica in the Jerusalem temple, and it, it literally replaces the simple bronze altar that Moses had prescribed. It's still there, the bronze altar is there, but it kind of is marginalized. And this big shiny altar. And he was really into sacrifice. Man, he, he sacrificed and, and sacrificed. He wanted to impress Tigliath Palaser that how, how loyal he was to him and as a vassal to his gods. And, and he even sacrificed his own son. And God says, Have I ever, God, God says this, have I ever asked that? Did I ask you for all this sacrifice? Did I ask you for all of these burnt offerings? Did I ask you for your firstborn? Did I ask you to redeem your firstborn? Or redeem your sin by the giving of your firstborn? God says, I never asked you for that. So I want you to see the procession here. Fear and unbelief produces idolatry, produces injustice. Fear and unbelief Idolatry, injustice. Let's all say it. Fear and unbelief, idolatry, injustice. When Jesus comes, it says that when John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus, in the pain of that, which must have been painful for Jesus, it says Jesus went into Galilee and he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. In spite of all the crap and all the garbage and all the negativism and all the things that the enemy will throw at you, there is a kingdom that has no lack, that is advancing, that we've read the last, last chapter and we know how it's going to end. And he says, believe. 
Believe that you're in that kingdom. Believe there's no lack in that kingdom. Believe that you, no matter how much the enemy will intimidate you and try to get you to compromise your faith and your worship of God and your justice towards your neighbor and get you to clench your fists and hold back and live in fear. He said, in spite of that, believe that you are in a kingdom where there is no lack. No lack. Repent and believe the good news. And that's really where injustice comes. And so in the context of this, God says, I don't want all your offerings and sacrifices. Here's what I want you to do. He's showing you all you people what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So justice is, first of all, the uh, uh, foundation of God's reign. It says in Psalm chapter 97, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Righteousness is, is more to do with our relationship with God and our personal integrity, whereas justice has to do with our neighbor. But it says righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. And often the church is polarized. The, le- the church on the left is really into justice. The church on the right is really into righteousness. And you need both. You, don't ha- you can't have true justice without righteousness. And you can't have true righteousness without justice. So, um, this, every day when we ask for the reign of God in the Lord's Prayer, it says righteousness and justice. are. So when I say, Lord, may your kingdom come, may your reign come, I'm asking for right, the reign of righteousness and justice. The second thing is justice addresses systemic evil. Do you remember in the riots in, 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 in June, how many people said, I found myself doing things I normally wouldn't do? And what happens is when you get evil in a corporate setting, it creates a powerful force that is, that, that, that is systemic and, we, and that's what the residential school system was. That's what apartheid was in South Africa. That's what the Egyptian slave system was for Israel. It's amazing how many civil rights movements have found their encouragement and hope in the story of Israel in Egypt. So there's systemic justice. And so justice is, is, is learning how to address and discern systemic evil. We are called to pro, proactively work for justice. In other words, not be passive but actually uh, look and see and watch for oppression and injustice and love our neighbors. And true justice is merciful and humble. I want to I argue that this passage, Micah 6.8, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. You cannot separate those three from each other. It's like a Holy Spirit cluster bomb. It's, it's, they're, they're intertwined. And without uh, mercy, there's no justice. Without justice, it's not mercy. Without, mercy. without walking humbly with God, how many know justice becomes hardened ideology and idolatry? You, it, it, it's intertwined. You've got to have all three together. And, and we want to wrestle with that as a church. How do we hold those things together? We've, we've been a church that's been known strongly for our mercy, and I think that's wonderful. That's, a, that's in our genetic code. But we must understand that we're not truly merciful if we're, if we're ignoring justice. And, tr- and justice says, not only will we feed the poor, 
but we will work to make sure they're not poor anymore. I, I, my friend Lane Walker used to say this, mercy is somebody's bleeding on the road and you come up and you stop the bleeding. That's, that's mercy. But if somebody keeps attacking that person so that they're always bleeding on the road, justice is saying, what are we going to do to stop the bleeding? What are we going to do to intervene? That's justice. We are called to be a community of justice. Isaiah said, Is this not the fast I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Isaiah was complaining because Israel was not keeping the year of Jubilee. That's exactly what he's talking about here. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? And here, I, I think he was mainly referring to your aging parents. It was very convenient to ignore your aging parents. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. You will be a well-watered garden whose springs never fail. That is the promise. If we will act justly, you will be like a well-watered garden whose springs never fail. So, in conclusion, as you know, when Gordy says that, it means nothing. <laughs> but we're circling for a landing here. A little bit later, Micah says this. Who is a God like you? Who, par who is a God? He goes, God, you are amazing. Now, what would you say? What do you think the next thing he's going to say? What, his power? His holiness? His love? His grace? What, what, what? What is he so overwhelmed with Micah, this guy that is, is, is representing God? He proclaims at the end of his book, this is one chapter later, Micah 7, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. You know, for two years, I sat in the darkness and said that verse almost every day. 1988, 1989, I said those words almost every day. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. And I was speaking to the powers of darkness because there was no other explanation for what happened to me. I didn't know what happened. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will arise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath. You know, there is a humble sense of coming before God when you're being chastened, when you're disciplined, and you just get on your face before God like the Lamentations did. He said, I just put my mouth to the dust, and I just wait on you, and I have one thing left that I hope in, and that's mercy. There's only one reason I'm here today. It's called mercy. There's only one reason you're here today. It's called mercy. Every morning I get up and I begin to walk through my neighborhood or run and I begin to thank God and there isn't one day that I don't have anything to thank Him for. Because if I got what I deserved, I'd be in hell. I'd be separated eternally from God. But I'm here because of mercy. It's mercy that you're here. We're all here, right? He said, do not gloat over me because I've sinned against him. I will bear. I will, I will take the discipline, Lord. I'll take it into my spirit. And Lord, I'll let you deal with me. Would you search my heart? 
until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light and I will see his righteousness. This New Testament says, Christ the just one suffered for the unjust so that we could be made just, made righteous. So can you throw that uh, song up? Um, I, I feel like I'd like to sing this together. In uh, Graham Ord wrote this, and we sung it. it. We haven't sung it for a while, but uh, I just I felt like I wanted to, as a meditation, just sing this together in an a cappella way with a little help with percussion. But um, this song is written on uh, Isaiah fifty. The, the, the scripture I just, I just quoted from. And uh, just while they're getting it ready, I just would like us just to bow our heads and, and just reflect on the mercy that God has shown us. The, the foundation of justice is mercy. The foundation of justice is mercy. And I want you just in your own way, between you and God, just to begin to thank Him right now for the mercies He has shown you. Something, one thing right now that you're aware of that, that just is a sign of his mercy. Thank you, Lord. Hmm. Welcome, a stranger. Give an orphan hope. Visit a prisoner. Help a widow cope. Then your light will shine forth like the sun. Then your light will shine on everyone. Give away your money. Heal the broken heart. Feed the hungry belly. Forgive the one who hurts. Then your life will shine forth like the sun. Then your light will shine on everyone. Speak out for the speechless. Love the one who's weak. Give shelter to the homeless. Serve the one who's least, then your light will shine forth like the sun. Then your light will shine on everyone. Yes, Throw away vain arguments, the falsehood and deceit. Pound the drums for righteousness. 
let injustice cease, then your light will shine forth like the sun. Then your light will shine on everyone. Yes, Lord. Yes. So, Lord, we reflect on these words, these incredible promises that you give to those who will align themselves with your heart of justice your heart of mercy, your heart of humility, your heart of servanthood. Lord, we confess our fear. We confess, Lord, our reaction, how that we've reacted to our parents' generation. and We've reacted to others who've been oppressive. And in so doing, we've found ourselves being as unjust as they are in the end. And we ask, Lord, that we would be a people that first of all extend your kingdom of justice through prayer, as you asked us to, to be a people of prayer. And to ask every day that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. But Lord, we know and your scriptures are clear that that prayer was not enough. Lord, as, as your people in the Old Testament heard through your prophets, that without accompanying obedience... Lord, prayer became just a vain action. And so we ask, Lord, that we would be people who pray and people who obey. People who will act justly, will love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. I ask that we would be a community of justice. I ask, Lord, that you you would help us to find ways where as in the early church, every need is met. That no one has to go without food or rent money or dental care or medical care or clothes or shelter. Father, would you lead us deeper? Lord, we're seeing signs of that kingdom. But Lord, without guilt, without a sense of obligation or entitlement, would you lead us in a healthy, prayerful walk towards being a community of justice. Lead us, Lord. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name. As we were praying, I um, was reminded of the fast that um, Gordy and and the leaders of our church called earlier this year, and our um, family was in Los Angeles, actually, the day of the the fast, and Sophia, um, our seven-year-old daughter, and I went during the period of time that um, our family had signed up for the fast, and the question that Gordy and the leaders of the church put to us was, how can we be a community of welcome? How can we be a welcoming community during this time? And gave us passages to study. And Sophia already shared when Dixie preached that 
as we looked at the scriptures together, Sophia came up with these very simple math equations that said, you know, 99 plus 1 equals joy. You know, the lost was found equals joy. And as we prayed and meditated over what our community would look like if we were a welcoming community, I just felt like one of the signs would be parties, that it would be fun. And I was sitting here praying, and I thought, I love that we're a church that started today with, like, beach balls and chocolate. And I just felt like the, that there is so much heaviness that can come from studying injustice around the world. And that is right, that we should respond soberly when we are faced with injustice. But I don't think, especially as someone who suffers from seasonal depression, (laughs) that going into a fall series about injustice necessarily needs to mean that we're going into a season of heaviness as a church. And it just felt like the Lord was reminding me, and I wanted to share, that God's call to us this year as a church, the word that our leaders gave to us, was to be a welcoming community, and those passages were about joy. And the whole beauty behind this gift of steps of justice that God's allowed us to be a part of as a family and that we're so thrilled that the church is taking on is that it is small steps that will bring us joy. It will bring our community joy. It will bring us something concrete and real in the face of something that seems overwhelming and huge. And with these practical action steps, we were overwhelmed that we felt like a year ago we sat with these friends of ours praying, God, what can we do? And we got to experience watching the very first pilot project in California where literally every week people would come with bags of groceries or supplies for foster kids. And there were so many Sundays that that happened. So I just want to encourage to remember that that's the word for our church for this year. And that's what we felt coming off of camp was this incredible joy. That's what we felt this morning with our beach balls and our chocolate. And that while we're walking in this season, that those two are, are not separate from one another. But that it's very possible that this is actually going to be an incredible season of joy and maybe more parties and more celebration and more welcoming than our church has ever seen as we do justice together. So that was just a reminder for me, and I hope that's helpful for you too. Amen. Just a couple of little steps of personal words. One would be to anybody that suffers, like I have in the past, from workaholicism. (laughs) So, and, and the whole word is that you can believe God for Sabbath and rest. And that, that as you uh, learn how to rest in God, the Lord can still bring you lots of money. And uh, you have more time to, to actually step out and do these wonderful things that you yearn to do, but you feel that you are bound up in your job. You don't have time to base, basically make yourself free. And uh, just recently in the last few months, God has given Gordy and I this bed and breakfast business. And it's freeing me up so that I can be more available to the community and do more volunteer work. And I really have a heavy burden for people that are involved in this. Like, I don't have time because I don't believe that that's true. I believe that that's a lie. The second thing is when Gordy was talking about remembering, I just felt very strongly that there might be a few people here that suffer from memory loss. Like, they find it difficult to remember things. And I felt like I was to pray for you. It doesn't necessarily mean you're older like myself. <laughs> but as you get older, sometimes that happens. 
and uh, that God wants to quicken somehow people that are like all of a sudden they they had a grasp of something, but then it's lost. Have you ever? It's kind of difficult when you're in a situation you can't remember something and you just feel like where is it gone? So I just feel like God wants to quicken us in our memory personally. Some people that are struggling with the memory issue, I'd really like to pray for you that. Um, yeah, and I really appreciate what you shared. Because at camp, I heard God very clearly say, and I'm just talking to you guys, bigger and better, dance parties. And I remember Jo sitting out there with her little light saying, this way to the party, this way to this party. And you know, like, we're all very heavy and we're all very burdened, but we are not going to impress or hurt or reach people by always being completely depressed all the time, you know? You know, like, so we have to get people in here and encourage them that we're going to be a community together. You know, and then we can actually inspire them to this is wonderful to reach out and to give and to share and to love and to get to know people and stand in the gap. So bigger and better, guys, I want a dance party for Halloween. I'm kind of taken like, but I don't know. Instead of Halloween, I'd like a hallelujah party of some kind. I don't know. I'm just maybe stepping over my bounds here. I think a dance dance for justice this fall would be great. Yeah. So, um, 